Uh, This evening we'll be in the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us opens shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers uh, who, who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. 
O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are. It's the first year of Darius the Mede. It's the home stretch of Daniel's career, and uh, he's had a very interesting career with its ups and downs. You, you know, we don't know for certain what Daniel's character was like before the exile, but all the signs indicate that he uh, had grown up faithful to the Lord, his God. And yet, as bad things so often happen to good people, he goes from the lush life of Judean nobility to the life of a political prisoner in Babylon. And yet, Nebuchadnezzar was an enlightened sort of ruler. He had his military conquests, but he was far more interested, it seems, in building up his empire than at tearing others down. And so, instead of leaving Daniel and the others to languish in prison, he gives him a job the opportunity to rise up in the ranks. Nebuchadnezzar leaves no stone unturned in his search for people of ability who can build his empire. And so Daniel rose in the ranks. And by the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, Daniel was at or near the top rank of Babylonian officials. But more significantly than that, Daniel has had multiple opportunities to teach Nebuchadnezzar about the true God of heaven. And in the end, Nebuchadnezzar at least makes progress towards saving faith. And there are some signs he maybe had saving faith. But then after Nebuchadnezzar's death, Daniel's position falls again until he's forgotten by everybody except the queen mother. On the night when Babylon is conquered, the night of Belshazzar's feast, the night when Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians. And yet here we are, still alive. Daniel has outlived five kings and one great empire. And again, Daniel has status with a new ruler, Darius the Mede, who rules over Babylon as the viceroy of Cyrus the Great. It's 539 BC and another springtime for Daniel. Now, if you were here way back when I was preaching from the beginning of Daniel, you'll remember at the end of chapter 1, we read, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And chapter 1 teaches us how Daniel began his time in Babylon with faithfulness to God. It, we, we learn that this faithfulness is the way he conducted himself throughout the duration of his long career in exile. We see this faithfulness played out in all these other episodes in the first half of Daniel. And then in the second half of Daniel, we see this series of apocalyptic visions from God that showed Daniel the significance of his faithfulness in the big picture of God's redemptive plan for history. Well, here in chapter 9, we have one last episode of Daniel's faithfulness with the short apocalyptic vision as a little coda which we'll talk about next time. But tonight, we take one last look at Daniel himself and how God was at work through his faithfulness. 
For as we begin this chapter again, it's 539 BC, the first year of Darius. It's a big year for God's people because it's a sign that God is still turning the wheels of history. Daniel has been reading in Jeremiah. He apparently has come to chapter 25, which says that the people of Judah will be exiled to Babylon for 70 years. Well, it's getting awful close to the end of 70 years. And as we know, as we've talked about before, prophecy deals often with round and symbolic and approximate time periods, which is the case seen here. 70 is 7 multiplied by 10, two numbers of completeness, given to indicate both God's control over the time of exile and that the exile will be a complete and perfect match to God's purposes for that exile. But perhaps more to the point, Babylon is no more. Babylon, the captor nation, is no more. For the first Persian empire, which historians today call the Achaemenid Empire, the first Persian empire has risen. And so it would look to the people of God like this time of exile is ending. So what does Daniel do? He knows that exile's end is drawing near but he also knows it hasn't happened yet. And so he gets on his knees. We know that Daniel was a man of prayer. We know that he prayed three times daily, even when forbidden by the king on pain of death. So Daniel sees the approach of God's promise, and he starts to pray. But note what kind of prayer this is. It's a prayer of repentance and a plea for God to follow through on his promise of mercy, prompted by what he reads in God's word. For Tim, Tim Keller, I think, astutely pointed out that prayer is the continuing of a conversation begun by God in his word. Well, Daniel has seen in God's word and his, in his own experience that the sins of his people are great, but also that God's mercy is great. And so he prays. So let me ask you this. Have things changed so much from Daniel's time to ours? Do you not see the similarities between Daniel's time and ours? We know Jesus is returning soon. We're waiting for the church's pilgrimage in this world to end and for Jesus to glorify us in his eternal kingdom. We're waiting for God to follow through on his promises but we also know that we're a sinful people. We know the depth of our sins. We know ways that the church has sometimes fallen short. We know that we can only throw ourselves on God's mercy. And we know that there are ways the church is on the ropes. Now, the point of this message isn't to scrutinize all the ins and the outs and the what-have-yous of the church's changing situation in the world or even more locally here, but it does appear that the church is on its way for more trying times. And it's certainly fair to point fingers at the changing world around us, but we could also consider whether maybe there is an element of God's discipline in it. Have we been as faithful to God as we would like to congratulate ourselves from being? 
we see in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 through 3 that God is willing to take down churches that are not faithful to him and his word. We see in Luke 13 that whenever we see the downfall of another, God is calling us to examine ourselves and repent. And in 1 Peter 4, we read that it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. God is calling us to endure suffering faithfully and to repent always of our sins and entrust ourselves entirely to him. And prayer is a critical way that we do that. Prayer is crucial to the life of the believer in Christ. It's like John Owen said, what a man is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Well, that's who Daniel was. And so when faced with the trials of his people, Daniel turns to God in prayer. And so as we look at this prayer this evening, we see it's a prayer of repentance and a prayer calling God to follow through on his promises of mercy. So Daniel turns first to repentance for his people's sins. Daniel reads that Jerusalem has been desolated on account of Israel's sins and that it will lay desolate for 70 years. And yet Daniel has reason to believe that God will soon end this desolation. But he turns first to repentance. And this prayer develops two main themes. First, it develops the depth of Israel's sins. And second, the depth of God's divine character. For Daniel is deeply aware of the sins of his people. He's been reading in Jeremiah and consider some of, just some of the accusations Jeremiah has for the people of Israel. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Daniel says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Daniel heaps up these descriptions of their sin to show God's people have sinned comprehensively. God's people have sinned absolutely. There's no depth of depravity too low for them to sink to. If you can think of a way to offend God, God's own people have done it. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Daniel confesses these sins, which he personally doesn't even appear to be culpable of. Now again, we don't know for sure what he was like before the deportation. Today, a walk from Babylon, a nice direct route on a nice highway shoulders in Iraq would take about a month. It would take a lot longer back then. There's no direct route from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so maybe that gave a young Daniel some time to think about his sins and repent of them. But we do know that since Daniel has lived in Babylon, he's been a model of faithfulness. And so Daniel here confesses the sins of his people, sins of the past, sins he might not have taken part in, And he's not even really a leader of his own people. I mean, he's a high-ranking official of Babylon. 
but we have no indication that in his own lifetime he had responsibility for teaching or leading the Israelites in religious matters. He's a prophet in the sense that, you know, he saw visions from God recorded for God's people, but prophets operated outside of the religious establishment. And Daniel's ministry in his own lifetime looks an awful lot like it was mainly to Babylonians. And so here Daniel is, in many respects, an ordinary guy where Israel is concerned, confessing sins that he personally didn't commit. And so when sins take place in our own community, it's right for us all to take part confessing and repenting of them. And at the heart of this sin, at the heart of Israel's sin, is a refusal to listen to God's word. For as it says in verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. God graciously gave his word to his people. He saved them. He made Israel a nation. And he taught them how he wanted them to live. But how did they repay God? By not listening to him. By disobeying him. And this isn't ignorance. This is willful disobedience. This is treachery. As Daniel himself calls it. And this disobedience touched every level of Israelite society. From the kings on down to the peasants, disobedience was rampant throughout Israel. And the shocking thing is how easily disobedience came to them. Despite all the blessings Israel enjoyed from their faithfulness to God, they always had this desire to look like the nations around them. As we see in 1 Samuel where they desired a king a, a king like the kings of the nations, rather than a king after God's own heart, or their desire to worship the pantheon of various deities that were available from the surrounding nations, desire to seek after fortune-telling and things like that, rather than trust in the God who had proved he would deliver them and who promised to deliver them again. And I think this is where we most clearly see ourselves. You know, we spend two or three hours a week here at church on Sunday, but what about the other 165 hours of the week? We go and live in a world that's governed by very different principles. In the business world, the one with the money calls the shots. On social media, the most extreme voices get the most respect. At school, the jocks or the fashionable kids get to arrange the pecking order. Now, there are often some restraints on wicked behavior in these spheres, but the natural state of things, at least, has nothing to do with God and his righteousness. In most areas of our lives, might makes right, no matter how that might is defined. And let's be honest, even within the life of our church, sometimes our community fails to model the love that should be the hallmark of the saints. But God's word calls us to a higher standard. It's so easy to want to fit in. Uh, that's been the story of the sins of God's people since time immemorial. But God's word calls us to live our entire life 
according to his principles of justice and love and respect for our fellow image bearers. James says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. These things ought not to be so. 1 Corinthians 6 even refers to a preference toward being defrauded in small matters rather than create conflict. Is this how we live our lives? Is this really how we live our lives? And we could go on, we could go through every verse of the scriptures and consider all sorts of ways that we fall short, ways that we ignore God's law, both as individuals and, uh, and as a church. And these are just a few examples. And so when you think of the degree to which we fall short, it is not surprising to us that Daniel takes Israel's rampant sin so seriously. So in light of the depth of Israel's sin, you might be wondering, how does Daniel even draw near to God to call upon him? Well, Daniel draws near to God on account of his knowledge of God's divine character. And this is the second great theme of this prayer. For God is a covenant keeper. When Daniel first addresses God, he He addresses God as the one who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The exile of God's people is simply God keeping up his covenant with Israel. Now, a covenant is a form of a contract, but it's a special kind of contract. It's a contract that establishes and codifies a relationship between two people or two parties. And so a covenant isn't just some dry legalese like we're used to a contract being today. Uh, As the president of Westminster's Corporation, I have the copy of our insurance policy. I'm glad we have it, but reading it doesn't make me feel like I could go to the broker underwriter's house for some beers and some barbecue. A covenant is deeper and richer than that. For a covenant defines a relationship. And an ancient Near Eastern covenant has a lot of parts But one important part of these covenants is that they define blessings and curses based on the faithfulness of the parties to the covenant. And so we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and Daniel uh, has this in mind in verse 11, we, we see things in Deuteronomy 28 like, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. We have the blessing. But we also have curses. It says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And most relevant to Daniel and his situation, it says, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. Daniel himself says it in verse 12. He has confirmed his words by bringing against us a great calamity. God is simply sticking to the covenant that he made with his people. And as Daniel says in verse 15, though God was faithful to his people to redeem them from Egypt, yet Israel has returned God's love with sin 
and wickedness. And so God is simply sticking by what he has said he would do. Which brings us to God's character as righteous. Now, righteousness is a concept that has several different angles to it. One of them is God's status as being morally in the right, and that all things that are right are judged according to his moral character. God is perfectly righteous in all that he is and does, and he cannot sin or do wrong. And that's like the angle that we see Daniel taking in verse 14. The Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done. But righteousness also has an element of public recognition. And we see this contrast in verse 7 where God's righteousness is contrasted with Israel's open shame. God made a name for himself in redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt. And Daniel says that God's city and people are called by his name. And this, by the way, is what Martin Luther says is at the heart of Jesus' instruction to pray, hallowed be your name. A prayer that God would cause our own conduct to show the world his righteousness, his holiness. But the people called by God's name have been wicked. They've forsaken him. And so how can God tolerate this situation? His own people have been wicked, and God's reputation in the world has become aligned with wickedness. In the eyes of the world, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is just the same as any other God, and God can't tolerate that. And so to defend his own name, he has no choice but to act by disciplining his own people. And he has to demonstrate his righteousness to a watching world by showing the world his own displeasure with their sinful conduct. And yet God is also merciful. For as Daniel says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And even as God heaps curse upon curse against Israel, if they don't obey in Deuteronomy 28, he says to his people in chapter 30 that when you call to mind the blessing and the curse and return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again. God's mercy is yet another aspect of his character as a covenant keeper. Punishment doesn't last forever for those who repent of their sins. And that's the problem. For in verse 13, Daniel says that God's people have not sought God's favor, have not confessed their sins, have not turned from their iniquities. And yet God's punishment is never intended to last forever, for God wants his discipline to lead his people to turn back to him. And out of this desire on God's part unfolds the next aspect of Daniel's prayer. For we see in verses 16 through 19 that Daniel prays a prayer of entreating God's mercy, expressing faith in his promise to be merciful. So Daniel calls upon God to follow through on the promises he has made to his people. This seems very audacious. How, after all of this that Daniel has said about Israel's sins, can he draw near to God? And we're all in the same boat. We've all offended a holy God. 
How can we approach God for mercy? As we've talked about so far, the answer lies in God's covenant and his character. God's promise to his people is the basis by which sinners like you and I can and must call upon God for mercy. For as Daniel says in verse 9, mercy belongs to God alone. There's nowhere else to turn for mercy. For Israel's sins, your sins, my sins are against God alone. And so Daniel prays this extended plea for God's mercy. And yet even here, Daniel prays that God would be merciful according to his righteousness. For God has promised his people that he would turn away from his wrath if they will turn to him in repentance. And so Daniel calls upon God to demonstrate his righteousness by following through on that promise and making his people new again. And not only that, but God's reputation among the nations has suffered for it. For Jerusalem and Israel have become a byword among the nations. So out of God's righteousness, he's had to, uh, he's had to discipline his people for their sins. But there's that other aspect of righteousness that it is publicly recognized. And God's name is now being insulted among the nations because of, because of the discipline he's poured out on his people. And so while it's important for him to demonstrate that there's one standard for all people, and even his own people will be disciplined if they don't keep it, the nations are starting to look at God as a God unable to save his own people. And so we come to the crucial point. God must demonstrate his righteousness in every respect. Now many of us know what it says in Romans 3, 23 through 24, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But I love the way Paul continues the thought. He says, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. And so in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God does not ignore sins but he doesn't ignore the needs of his people. He maintains his holy standard. Sin goes unpunished by the pouring out of his wrath on Jesus. But through this pouring out of wrath, he shows also that he is too just to punish sin twice. And so all those who entrust themselves to Christ by faith have those sins forgiven. Because God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. And so God's people have their sins forgiven and he will stand up for you. Now Daniel didn't know who Jesus was just yet, but he knew that God was well able to hold discipline for sin and salvation for his people together. He knew that God had made a covenant with his people to do just that. And now God's covenant with you has been fully revealed in Jesus We've said that Daniel was reading in Jeremiah, and if Daniel kept reading, he got to the point in chapter 31 where it says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Jesus is the mediator of this covenant. And so in Jesus, it doesn't matter what sins you've committed, whether you've led a relatively good life or a relatively bad life, if you know that you've fallen short, you know that even your best works don't rise up to the standard of God's holiness. But if you entrust yourself to Christ, all of your sins have been poured out on him. God shows his righteousness by punishing your sins, and he shows his righteousness because now he can show you mercy, and he does show you mercy. And that sets you free, free to live life in a way that honors God. That's where we find true freedom. You know, it's tempting to look at God and think his standards are high, too high for us to meet. And and we've talked earlier about all the ways that the world teaches us to behave and treat one another. It's easier, isn't it, to just go along with the way the world works, but that's not a way that leads to freedom. Our modern idea of freedom, this freedom from restraint to do whatever we will, it's only a few hundred years old. Prior to that, not only Christianity, but also most of the other major world philosophies thought of freedom as freedom within yourself to pursue virtue. Now, other philosophies had different ways that your own works would lead you to virtue. But in Christianity, we see that when we become one of God's children by faith, not by our works, but by faith, God makes us alive so that we can turn from our sins. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we walk in newness of life. For the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and starts to change the course of our lives. And when we've been transformed by the power of God, we find it refreshing. For that's true freedom. The freedom to live life the way God always meant it to be lived. And that's what Daniel is praying for. He knows that God is a God who turns his wrath away from those who have faith in him. And he changes the course of their lives. And we know from history that Daniel's prayer was answered. For this same year that he prays this prayer, Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, the new big man on campus, he issues the edict that God's people should be permitted and aided in their journey home. That Jerusalem should be repopulated and that the holy vessels that Nebuchadnezzar stole should be returned. And three years after this, God's people began to rebuild the temple. And yet even so, even when we read in Ezra of the completion of the second temple, we don't read that God's glory filled the temple like it did when the tabernacle and the first temple were completed. For God's purpose awaited a greater fulfillment when Jesus came and died for his people and built a new temple, a temple made out of living souls in the church, put together by the Holy Spirit as a dwelling place for God. And we still wait today for Jesus to return and finish the work he's begun. And as we wait, we pray. Like the saints in Revelation How long, O Lord? And so we pray.
And God will answer our prayers. Just as he did with Daniel, through our prayers, he makes us a part of his plan for salvation. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for your promise to fulfill all your good purposes for us. And Father, we, you know the ways we fall short. Father, you know the ways that we live our lives according to the ways of the world and not according to your word. Ways that look very good in the eyes of people that we want to impress. Sometimes even ways that look very good to one another. But have no root in your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would indeed transform us. Father, we pray that you will cause us to walk in that newness of life, each of us individually, us as a church here in Corvallis, us as your church worldwide. And we eagerly await the day of Jesus' return. So, Father, we pray that you would indeed send him soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.